0: This is the broad bit of everything podcast. You're here with Jess and Katie. This is a monumental moment, I think. Having you on a podcast is one of, like, it's a bucket list thing, I, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, I can edit things out.
1: <laughs> well, that's terribly complimentary because, you know, all I did was teach your media studies. Well, I don't know if I taught you media studies. Definitely. I I was in the same room <laughs> As you, when you were learning media studies, um, while I was teaching English and Year Thirteen, and media st- Year Thirteen media studies. <laughs> so, so uh, Jess, you put up with um, with two years worth of uh, how would I put this negligence, most ridiculous option line clash in the history of the planet yeah. that you couldn't take dance and media studies. I mean, that's not like not being able to take chemistry and physics. Hmm. Kind of kind of an oversight Yeah. on the part of the timetablers.
0: Yes. <laughs> it's a, that was a very um, annoying thing I had to deal with. It was. And, and the fact that you persevered and actually got through. And endorsed um, merit. All, uh, there you go. Media studies uh, and merit all of those three years.
1: I could take a little bit of the credit I say Oh, yes, definitely. For being an amazing teacher (laughs)
0: in year 11. Oh, and no, but I also endorsed (laughs) um, English with Mira in year 13, didn't I?
1: Oh, probably.
0: So tell the listener a bit about yourself.
1: Well, I have been teaching in uh, a West Auckland high school for, oh, this is my 18th year. Yep. My 18th year of teaching um, uh, all in the same school uh, and I developed media studies um, in the early days of NCA uh, well developed it for that that local school um, in the early days of NCA I think I think my first media studies class would have been in 2004 or five four. 2004. There you go. So that's how long I've been teaching media studies for. I uh, have a lot of uh, very strong opinions, um, and uh, those come through in my classroom quite strongly. Was it was it you who whose year thirteen year yearbook quote was? I'm not quite sure what you said, but I'm pretty sure I have an opinion about it. No, it was a couple of years before you. That's that's me.
0: That's yeah, me. That I, is... I
1: have I have opinions. Um, a lot of them are pretty political, which I'm not supposed to talk about in class. But it's really hard. It's really hard not to bring the, not to make the personal political and the, bring that into your, into your job site and into your classroom. And you know, we're shaping young minds. They need to know these things. They need to care about politics and understand that. Our lives are political so
0: speaking of political (laughs) um, it's the election next weekend Mm -hmm. depending on when this comes out but the election has been slash will be on the on the 17th of October so that's next weekend Mm -hmm. what are your opinions about
1: the New Zealand political scene I am extremely pro MMP Um, I wish we would lower the threshold uh, for uh, the party vote um, for a lot of reasons. One of them is that I think that we'd have fewer people voting for crackpot parties because if there was a chance that they might actually get in with 3% of the vote or 4% of the vote. This this year is a really interesting one because um, I've voted in every single election since MMP came in and this is the first time that we looked set to have fewer than five parties in parliament um uh and that's an incredible narrowing of the field typically with mmp you start off with a really wide spread and then it's but it's narrowed right back down again and the thing probably that interests me the most this time around is the resurgence of act because i saw they were above greens in one of the one
0: news colmat Brunton post they've been polls.
1: consistently polling above the greens um since beginning of the election campaign cards on the table i'm a member of the green party um so yeah the greens green support has been uh slipping and sliding around um, but they've been below act and that's really interesting because act um, this is the highest that act has ever polled based on yesterday's colmar brunton poll which was before the tvnz debate Uh, they would bring 11 mps into parliament And the most interesting thing to me is that of their top 11 people on their list only one of them has any political experience whatsoever and that's Seymour. Um, You'll see that a lot of people who are on for instance uh, who are lower down on Labour's list who may become MPs for the first time post this election um, may have things like um, local body um, political experience Uh, Chloe Swarbrook was a mayoral candidate before she became a Green MP so these are people who understand a bit about how the system works it's interesting to me but also concerning to me that acts candidates don't seem to let me put it this way they're gonna have a hell of a learning curve um, uh, bringing those ten ten newbies into Parliament and um, the prospect of them actually being part of government um, is even more concerning there's a lot of a lot of pressure in act from the business community there's a lot of pressure in act from the gun lobby and two of their sort of headline policies are the repeal of the uh, gun legislation brought in in the wake of christchurch and the repeal of our existing hate speech laws And both of those things I think are, I personally don't think that they would be acceptable to the majority of New Zealanders. Uh, But if they were the support party to a national led government, they'd be in a position to push those through. And I think that's, um, I don't think that that sort of of thing would be acceptable. Um, I don't think it's what the majority of New Zealanders want. Um, Mm. So that, that bothers me, that's concerning. MMP has tended to slide centrist um, because there's a need to uh, reach compromise between different political parties and it means that the extremist views are less prominent and I think that's a good thing I mean I think there is, there is a place for radical change uh, particularly around um, climate action um, we are seriously running out of time and, and also, New Zealand's uh, fairly radical approach to COVID. Um, that's been radical action was needed. And, and we can see looking around the world at just how countries that didn't take radical action, uh, how badly they're faring in comparison to somewhere like New Zealand, yeah. Taiwan, um, whose action was just as radical but very, very different from what we did so yeah I think I think the New Zealand political scene is it's it's very interesting I think MMP is is a real I wrote a, a few blog pieces a f- couple of years ago Canada was going through a, um, a campaign for proportional representation and um, my old journalism teacher back from my high school days uh, contacted me to see if I'd be interested in writing from a New Zealand perspective and it really got me thinking about um, the benefits that we enjoy in New Zealand because of proportional representation rather than first-past-the-post. In a first-past-the-post system, uh, the last three years would have been um, a national government. And it wouldn't have been a national-led government either. It would have been a national government. Mm. Uh, if you lived in a a safe labour seat and you were a national voter, um, well, tough titty said the kitty you almost never had an MP who was not from one of the main two parties uh, make it into Parliament um, under first-past-the-post. And I think that having that breadth of views um, is really, really important. The other thing I think is really interesting about this uh, this time around is that we, for the first time since the implementation of MMP, it, we look set to not have a centrist, a purely centrist party uh, in Parliament. So. In the past, we've had uh, United Future and New Zealand First both um, straddling that that fence in the middle. That's a very rude way to put it, the fence sitters. But Winston and New Zealand First have supported a national-led government and now they've supported a Labour-led government. But it looks now like, well, United Future is history. Um, And it looks like um, New Zealand First is is not going to make it over the threshold. Which means we have got a centre-left party and a centre-right party and a far-left party and a far-right party. We don't have anybody in the middle who could go both ways. What concerns me most, I think, is the prospect that the Greens fall below 5%. Because I, th- I think, I, I don't think Labour is going to make it over 50%. No party has. In, in the history of MMP, no party has made it over 50%. Every party has always needed friends in Parliament. Um, and at the moment, it looks like the Greens are the only possible coalition partners for, for Labour. So that's what what concerns me the most. Um, as much as I am a Green Party member, I know that their policies are not for everyone. And I think they've, they've certainly um, pissed off a few people with their wealth tax, um, for instance. A lot of their environmental roots have um, kind of gone, well, you know, why are you becoming so concerned with social policy all of a sudden I think the answer to that is that um, somebody has to so and
0: there's going to be referendum or referenda Referenda. in this election
1: Mm. yes well the last time we had a referenda it was about the flag which is terribly important (laughs) still pissed off about that but you know I am surprised frankly that um, I'm not surprised that it looks like one will pass and the other will not. I am surprised that it's cannabis doesn't and end of life choice does. I think that's extremely interesting because I would have pegged it the other way around. And I don't know whether that is from a misunderstanding of what the cannabis referendum is actually about. Um or if it's just historic prejudice against um against drugs um but I don't think honestly at least for someone of my generation the cannabis referendum has not been sopping up nearly as much news time and nearly as much media attention as the end of life choice bill so yeah it's um it's going to be an interesting result either way I think um I was saying to you earlier, cannabis, for me, that's an easy answer. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's, um, it's not about whether people should be using cannabis. People are going to use cannabis regardless. Um, uh, if you want to access cannabis in our country now, you can. Um, you do so illegally and at your own risk, but you can access it. Unfortunately, you also, in doing so, um, are breaking the law... Um, and coming into contact with an unregulated, unsafe market Um, and potentially coming into contact with uh, pressures to use other substances. There's no quality control. You don't know what you're getting. Yes, medical uh, cannabis is legal, but it's very hard to get. I grew up in Canada and, and I go back to visit every so often and cannabis is legal there now. Um, for recreational use and it's heavily monitored and controlled just like the proposal in New Zealand and one of the things that that I noticed in my last visit after it was legalized um, was that a couple of of my old friends um, who used to self-medicate quite heavily with alcohol and probably to unsafe levels have now cut alcohol out almost entirely and are using cannabis moderately instead. They didn't use to uh, because it was illegal. It was not hard to get, but you ran a risk. Um, and they've said they just didn't want to come into contact with the criminal element that they would have had to go through in order to access mm-hmm. cannabis. And now they can get it, you know, from the from the shop. It's not medical. Um, it's not on prescription. It's just recreational. But using a moderate amount of cannabis is keeping them from the harm of overusing alcohol. And that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Our existing laws around uh, drugs disproportionately affect Māori. And, and it is incredibly racially biased. Um, if you're middle aged and white, uh, it is a risk to use cannabis. Um, but it's a pretty low risk. If you're young and brown, it's a serious risk. And we know that uh, once you're in the criminal justice system, that's gonna continue. Um, if you get sent down for possession or possession with intent to sell, we send you to send you to prison, you come out a gang member. Um, you come out a, a, a criminal, not just a kid who made some bad choices. And then the cycle perpetuates itself again. If we can remove cannabis from that, from the gangs, and put it into the hands of, you know, responsible businesses, um, well, that benefits our economy. It also means that that ordinary citizens are not are not criminals for something that ultimately probably does less harm to our society than alcohol. Years ago, I heard a debate on. I think it was Radio New Zealand uh, over some research that had been done I believe by Otago University that said that cannabis is a gateway drug and they had two sides of the political spectrum and I'm just going to go and label them ACT and the Greens. ACT said right this proves it. cannabis is a gateway drug therefore uh, we need to uh, enact stiffer penalties. It's currently a class C drug it should be class A um, because that's how you you know it's, it's getting people hooked on harder things it's getting people hooked on um, methamphetamine and pee and and the greens predictably said no other way around decriminalize it and the interviewer said what why this research shows the reason it is a gateway drug is nothing to do with the chemical properties of cannabis it is entirely to do with how you have to access it um if you decriminalize it, and they were just talking about decriminalization at the time, not legalizing, if you decriminalize it, you get it out of the hands of the gangs, you do not have to come into contact with someone who is selling harder drugs in order to access cannabis, and therefore it is no longer a gateway drug. There's nothing nothing in cannabis that will, you know, if you, you use cannabis, that's not gonna make you wanna use pee. No. Right. But if the guy who's selling you the cannabis is saying here just try this but if you're buying it from a licensed premise from the shop down the road um, they're not selling P. therefore you're not going to come into contact with P. Mm-hmm. not a gateway drug it seems so simple to me and yet there is such I think I don't know if it's misinformation or if it's just people have not taken the time to inform themselves as to what the referendum is actually about and what what it would mean. Uh, there's a lot of concern about well you know young people and cannabis it's very bad for developing brains. Well we know that. Um, young people know it too because it's been drummed into them um, in health class and by anybody who will take the time, they're telling them you mustn't smoke cannabis, your brain is still gr- developing, you mustn't have alcohol, your brain is still developing, you're going to live a sad and lonely life and you'll probably be brain damaged for life if you do any of these things. Well, that's not a great way to convince students and young people not to do something. But we know it's not great for developing brains. We also know alcohol is not great for developing brains. A bit of research coming out of Canada, they've seen a decrease in the number of young people using cannabis anecdotally because it's no longer an act of rebellion Um, it's normal it's something your parents do which makes it not terribly cool (laughs) Um, and also because it's harder to get when the dealer doesn't care how old you are they just care if you can pay that makes cannabis actually more accessible to young people than alcohol but if there are id checks and You know, quantity limits, for goodness sake. We don't have that on beer and wine, but we're going to have it on cannabis if this referendum passes. We'll have a maximum quantity that you can purchase per day or a maximum number of plants that you can grow, um, which will make it harder for young people to access. And that makes a hell of a lot of sense to me.
0: Okay, if it
1: gets legalised, would you try it? Or, like, have you tried it? (laughs) I... I never liked what cannabis did to me, and um, I used it a few times when I was younger, mainly because it was cool, it was was an act of rebellion, it was also very, very available. But it was not really my buzz. But that doesn't mean, the fact that I personally wouldn't want to use it doesn't mean that, that I don't think other people should be able to. That said, I think... I, 'm I wouldn't entirely rule it out because my experiences with cannabis were in an unregulated market which favored uh, high production of THC. The two most common ways to consume cannabis were to smoke it, which i I hate smoking, and you know, to bake it into brownies or something like that. Edibles? Edibles? Absolutely. A regulated cannabis market is more likely to wind up giving a variety of consumption choices and also options in terms of the levels of the drug and what they do. In the States, medical medical marijuana went two different ways depending on the state. In California, when Uh, medical marijuana was legalized, Uh, what happened was you went to your doctor, your doctor wrote your prescription, and then you went to a cannabis dispensary and they gave you a certain amount of the oil or um, uh, just the raw product, and then you used it. The other model was called the Oregon model. In Oregon, you got a prescription to grow a certain number of plants. And depending on what you were suffering from, you grew a different strain. So if you were suffering from glaucoma, you got this particular batch of seedlings. And if you had bowel cancer, you had this one. If you were battling nausea, it was this one. If it was for pain relief, it was that one and so on and so forth. And I think that that's also what we see with recreational cannabis. Um, You know, we, we would probably be able to regulate the levels of THC, but you'd also have choices. You know, I mean if i want to if, if if i consume alcohol i've got choices i can consume you know i can i can sit and sip a glass of whiskey that's 40% um, i can have a glass of wine that's 12% i can have a beer that's 5% i can have a dealcoholized beer that's 0.5% i don't always have to have something that is going to get me very drunk if i drink it too fast Mm. right if i'm drinking low alcohol beer i'm going to explode or need to use the toilet before i get particularly drunk right and i it is not possible to get blackout drunk on things that are lower alcohol whereas it's very possible of course with things that are higher higher percentage Um, and so we make our choices and we also we learn to regulate our use of the substance when we know what kind of thing we're dealing with right? so um, if I have a you know I don't often drink a glass of whiskey it's more often gin but if I have a a gin and soda I might think well um, I'm just going to put in half a shot and have a very tall drink with a lot of soda water, or tonic, or whatever it is, um, because I don't want to um, feel effects too early. If I've got a glass of wine, I'm regulating how quickly I'm drinking it because I know how strong it is. This is a number of years ago, but cannabis is not possible, at least in my experience. You didn't know how strong it was until you were already too far gone to be able to slow down or stop. And I think that what what can we do about that? Well, regulate it. You know, label it. You know, this one's this one's stronger, this one's more potent. Makes sense.
0: The other referenda is mm. the end of life choice bill.
1: Mm. I I always thought that I would be in favour of Pro choice, in anything. I, I taught my kids right from the time they could form an independent sentence, "My body, my rules." It's nobody's business. That's how I feel about abortion. It's nobody's business. It's a, it's a, it's a health issue. It's a medical issue. It's a person's choice. And so I always thought that I would be pro choice in this as well. But I've done a lot of soul searching, a lot of thinking a lot of reading and then latterly I realized that I was probably reading the wrong things. I do think that a person should have the right to choose. Unlike an early term abortion though assisted dying would be much more public and therefore much more there would be much more likelihood of pressure. The majority of abortions happen before a woman is sorry before a person with a uterus is visibly pregnant. Whereas But the end of life choice legislation, because it it wants six months uh, life expectancy of six months or less, that's going to be much more public and therefore much more open to pressure or perceived pressure from those close to the person who may choose uh, to be assisted in ending their life and therefore it's not really entirely their choice. And that bothered me. I also had read a few uh, takes on the issue centering around our vastly unequal health system in New Zealand in terms of access to good palliative care. An urban dweller, you're more likely to be able to access good uh, palliative care than someone who lives more rurally. We know that Māori and Pacifica have far worse health outcomes by virtually every measure, everything we can measure. But there's there's also a lot of religiosity bound up in this. And to be totally honest, I mean, we already have assisted dying in New Zealand. We just don't call it that. Palliative care is assisted dying. Most hospice patients will be on doses of painkillers, which will shorten their lives but their lives will be relatively pain-free. We already have assisted dying in the fact that it's legal to uh, turn off life support. It is legal to have a do not resuscitate order. It's legal to request to cease being given food and water. So we, we already have this. I finally read the legislation, and it seems to me that having actually read the legislation and gone back to the source... It's not bulletproof. There will be problems in implementation. There will be problems, uh, there, there, will, there will be things that we didn't foresee that become an issue, but there always are. That's why we have amendments to our legislation. Um, by having read the legislation and really thought about, well, what are the loopholes that I can see? I, I don't think I can see any. I think they've really covered their basis. And I think I think this is something I can get behind. That uh, one of the reasons that I was uneasy about about this legislation is because it was um, it's David Seymour's bill. Because of my anti-act uh, prejudice, um, I was kind of going, well, you know, what nefarious purpose is this going to serve? But I've read the legislation, and I think ultimately it will make us a kinder and better society to have the choice to be able to die with dignity. When you know your life, your days are numbered. There are enough strictures around being of sound mind. Provisions for psychiatric assessment for those who, two medical professionals, cannot agree are of sound mind. I think they've got their bases covered. And, you know, I guess I'm happy that at least one piece of legislation is going to pass. As I said, though, I, I honestly would have pegged us the other way around. I would have thought that New Zealand might not be ready for assisted suicide, assisted dying, but that we are ready for the legalization of cannabis. So I guess that's going to be another interesting uh, outcome.
0: So you're from Canada. Mm. Well, yeah. Close enough. Yeah. (laughs) What are the politics like in Canada versus New Zealand?
1: Oh, Canada's still suffering under first past the post, for one thing, Um, which means that um, about half the votes are wasted. Um, which is a real shame. Much like in New Zealand, historically, uh, the left in Canada um, is much more fractured than the right, which has enabled the right to be in power. You know, uh, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, Prime Minister Centrefold, as he's jocularly known. (laughs) But uh, the only reason that Trudeau got in was because there was a massive campaign in the left to do what, what was uh what's known as strategic voting so people who uh, supported another party like the ndp or the greens uh were asked please vote liberal which is justin Trudeau's party um, and it's the only reason they got over the line and that's absolute travesty to think that in order to have a government that even remotely represents your worldview you have to hold your nose and vote for a party that you don't love. I think MMP in New Zealand gives us that ability to actually go, well, what party aligns most closely with my values, and then vote with your heart? Which is making it really difficult at the moment because I'm strongly advocating for people who are uh, left, more left leaning, you know, to the, to the left of where Labour sits um, to strategically vote Green, um, simply because we need them in Parliament even though you may not 100% agree with all of Green's policies, Labour needs a friend. But, you know, to get back to Canada, this talk of party vote versus electorate votes completely foreign to them. You just vote for the person in your writing. So Canada's politics is is quite backward. The Liberal uh, government of Canada, their policies are quite comparable to those of Labour. I don't follow Canadian politics probably nearly as closely as I should um, given that I'm a registered voter and I take the time to put in my my two cents whenever there's an election When is the next election? Uh, they've got a four year term so I think it's next year oh, Okay. Yeah yeah, I'm pretty sure um, Is it four or five? Hell I should know this So if a four year term it would be this year and it's not Oh yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> there was an election last year. Uh-huh. that's right. I did vote. It's it, so it's five year term, up to five years. Oh, last yes. last time it was a little bit shorter, which probably a good thing, because otherwise they would have had a, an election in a COVID year, and given Canada's managing of the pandemic, which is better than the United States, but still, you know, not not as good as New Zealand speaking so. of the
0: united states oh christ it's quite funny how we've got an election this year and so does america
1: oh yes yes funny is one word for it funny peculiar maybe oh god Hmm. oh yeah so the u.s jesus fucking christ am i allowed to say that holy shit balls it's a train wreck I just, I do not, I do not understand so much of how that works. The thing that terrifies me right now and makes me extremely grateful to be at the ass end of the world, a long way from anywhere, everything that happens in the U.S. affects Canada materially. I mentioned to you earlier that part of, Canada's problem with managing the COVID pandemic is their proximity to the United States and the fact that they've got this massively long undefended border, which leaks like a sieve. There's people boating up into Canadian waters um, for a weekend and um, stopping into little indigenous villages along the way and potentially spreading COVID to unprotected communities with very little in the way of health care. The land border is closed, but you can still fly from Canada to the States and vice versa. And although the land border is closed, you can still cross the border from the U.S. into Canada. If you are traveling directly through Canada to Alaska. My mother-in-law tells me there are a lot of lost Americans on their way to Alaska who got lost in tourist spots like Banff which is sort of on the way, but they're supposed to go directly there. And they're not. There's a lot of American license plates in the tourist spots. So it seems like they're a little confused. So it is with great delight that I exist in New Zealand, 12-hour plane ride away from the United States. It's quite good, really. Hmm. Hmm. Talking about Canada's political system being ass-backward and, and ancient and no longer fit for purpose. The U.S. God, those founding fathers were so shit-scared of corruption. They hedged about with so many checks and balances. I don't think you can call the United States a democracy anymore. It's not the people who elect the president. The people vote for the Electoral College and then the Electoral College selects the president and in any case you can't you don't stand a chance of winding up with presidential nomination unless you are independently wealthy Earlier this year I just palmed over the realisation that there were two over 70 year old white men vying for the opportunity to take on another over 70 year old white man for the leadership of one of the largest economies in the world. And it just boggles my mind that people as blatantly out of touch as those bloody old white men. I mean, for goodness sake, You know, get with the program, elect someone who doesn't collect a social security check. That'd be a good start. Someone who has got a little bit of racial diversity. Someone who, I don't know, has two X chromosomes. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Just, wow. There was a lovely uh, ad in 2018, Knock Out the Vote, I think it was called, and or that was the campaign was for the the midterms and i may have played it for your media class or maybe i played it for the class that you should have been in (laughs) and it was dear young people and it was a bunch of old white people no no it was satire dear young people don't vote you might post about it on instagram if the weather's good you might go on one of those little marches but you won't vote You young people never do. But they're saying things like, Trump, that was us. He's our guy. Climate change sounds like a you problem. I'll be dead soon. You know, this is the, this is the thing. You look at the UK, you look at Brexit, the people who will be affected by it for the longest voted to remain the people who will be affected by Brexit for the least amount of time and potentially are already dead from coronavirus by the time Brexit eventually happens, they voted to leave because who cares what's going to happen in 10 years' time or 20 years' time because I'll be dead. Has Brexit not happened yet? Has it? Who knows? Oh, I can't keep track. That was another part of the ad. I can't keep track of which lives matter. You know, the people who make the decisions, we need to involve that element. I would I would quite like to see us entertain the idea in New Zealand of being able to apply to, you know, to being registered to vote. Being on the electoral roll is compulsory once you're 18. You don't have to vote, but you have to be enrolled. I would like it to be optional to be enrolled between 16 and 17. Yes. And then... By the time you're 18, you must be enrolled. But if you are 16 or 17 and there's election coming up and you want to enroll and vote, then you should bloody well be able to enroll and vote. I don't think we should make it compulsory. No. I don't, think, I don't even think we should just say we're lowering the voting age to 16. And the reason for that is that the first time you vote is incredibly important because it sets a pattern. If you don't vote the first time you're eligible to, then you are unlikely to vote in subsequent elections and so therefore it's it's important that the that that when you are eligible to vote you are engaged in that process now you know I've worked with West Auckland teenagers for more years than I care to count and I know that there are a lot of very politically aware motivated concerned young citizens in our country I also know that there are a lot of people who it's just not on their radar. There are other things in their lives that are more important. And I'm fine with that. You know, I don't think that I I I do feel that our young people carry the weight of the world on their shoulders um, to a very great degree. And those who are politi- who are particularly political do that even to a greater extent because they are thinking about the future and they are worried about, you know, How are they going to live? Where are they going to live? What's climate change going to do? Um, What about the impact of COVID on the economy? You know, as a young person, COVID is eminently survivable, but, you know, a lot of the jobs that are lost uh, are lost from industries that are dominated by young people. So, you know, a young person's economy is devastated by something that, where they've stepped into, you know, and stepped up to protect their grandparents but i would i would really like for those young people who do have something to say to be able to say it and to be able to have their voice heard and counted i know that you know young people's voices are increasingly being heard but that doesn't mean their voices count not the same way as a vote does and that just pivots right back around to uh to the us where Actually, the margin between the Democrats and the Republicans in a vote like California doesn't matter a damn. California is so blue, it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter, right? Nationwide, Biden is leading Trump by nine points. Now that is unheard of. That is, it's it's an immense margin. Presidential races in the US are typically much closer than 9%. That's a massive margin. Right. But it doesn't matter that Biden is leaning by nine percent nationwide, because in states like Florida, the margin is one percent and it's Florida and those what they refer to as the battleground states. That's where this election is lost and won because everything is so decentralized and so far removed from the popular vote. But the disrespect of Trump and not all Republicans, but a good number of Republicans for tradition and decency and due process is just ridiculous. The US is a train wreck. Uh, it's going to be an interesting transition point. And, oh God. I mean, when Trudeau won in Canada in 2015 or 16, whatever it was. I posted "What up, Canada?" It ain't perfect, but it ain't Harper, and that's what counts. So Harper, Stephen Harper was the previous Prime Minister of Canada, and he was um, hard right. Well, further to the right. Biden wouldn't. Uh, it's not my cup of tea. Wouldn't have been my pick. Don't know who would have been, but it wouldn't have been him. Um, but it's not Trump, and and honestly that's all that matters because I cannot think of someone less qualified and less able to lead the U.S. through this crisis and of course what happens in the U.S. affects the rest of us and you know I've got elderly relatives in Florida and California. I'd like for them to eventually be able to go out of their houses again yeah that would that would, that would be nice that would be very um, that would be human humane even that's what yes. i to say. <laughs> <laughs> it would be it would be great it would be great for them to be able to actually interact with real human beings not just zoom calls and go to the grocery store like normal people maybe even you know visit their friends who knows yeah. instead of sitting at home and as my Aunt Belle said try not to throw something at the TV whenever that orange moron appears
0: <laughs> oh dear
1: I don't know how they're going to manage the voting
0: because wasn't wasn't Trump going to try close down all the mailboxes because that's how people
1: vote yeah something like that he's uh, arguing strongly against postal ballots Um, The main concern that most Americans have about postal ballots is that the U.S. Mail Service will be overwhelmed and those those ballots won't be counted in time. So voting, early voting has opened and people are queuing for hours. Uh, North Carolina, uh, someone interviewed a woman who um, had slept on the doorstep of the polling place overnight so as to be first in line when it opened in the morning. Kind of like a concert. Yep. Yep. Only less 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 fun fun. less fun of a payoff. Yeah, yeah. Possibly a more important payoff, though. Like to think that
0: Judith Collins said something about um, education and media studies (laughs) and (laughs) media studies being a woke subject.
1: Well, first of all, I think that um, if you're over fifty, you've got no business appropriating. Well, over fifty and a Kiwi, you've got no business appropriating um, uh, Black American slang. Also, you clearly, Judith, you clearly don't understand what that word means. Oh, Lord. Um, I think there's a there's a, there's a fundamental disconnect here in terms of uh, what we see education, what the purpose of education is. If you think of education as being a path to a career, um, then we should go back and... Uh, start giving everyone aptitude tests when they're 10 and find out whether they're on a pathway to university or whether we should find them an apprenticeship as soon as possible. In the bad old days, you know, now you're 16, you must choose a career. If you didn't do well in school and you didn't do well with your traditional academics, then well, see you later, go and find yourself a job. When I started high school, um, it was very typical for girls to take uh, typing. Typing classes were dominated by girls because girls were the ones who would need to know how to type because their male bosses would just dictate everything and they would have to take shorthand. And, you know, just that was a much more usual path. If we think of education as teaching you the skills that you will need for a specific job, then I don't necessarily disagree with what Judith said. I mean, I do. But if we think of... Education as being a method of building citizens will then fostering creativity as photography does and fostering critical thinking as media studies does is absolutely fundamental. I completely disagree that there's too much media studies. I don't think there's such a thing as too much media studies. I think studies. there needs to be enough, me- uh, more media studies. My well-rehearsed thing to say as I say it to people often, is that once a, a teenager leaves high school, first of all that's our last uh, opportunity for um, compulsory education, and I think we need to think about what what we want our citizens to to know and to understand as a whole. But once a young person leaves formal education setting, most uh, students um, will never again use calculus. No. Many will never use algebra. No. Right? Physics, um, phys- physics equations, um, chemical experiments, you know, unless you are going on to take a, take a degree in science. And aviation. Yep. Yeah, no longer, no longer uh, part of your world. I remember well a, a um, maths teacher of mine where we asked him, this would have been in uh, probably year 12, excuse me, sir, um, when are we going to use this again? And he said, are you are going to do maths at university? And we went, nah. And he said, uh, yeah, you'll never need to know this after this year's exam then. And we're like, well, that's great, really. Shakespeare, a very small minority of people will voluntarily ever have anything to do with Shakespeare ever again. Reading. I'm an English teacher I love literature I am under no illusions that possibly a majority of my pupils will never again read a fictional book for pleasure they'll do a lot of reading but it won't be literature and it won't even be you know the the popular murder mystery series they're done with reading now however when parents say to me why should he take media studies? What's the point? Blah, blah, blah. What's the career pathway and so on? I say, well, never mind a career. Unless you're going to be a hermit on a mountaintop, your world is saturated with media. And the more we understand about what media does and how it affects us, the more we can mitigate its impact on us. We can't get rid of it. We can't put the genie back in the bottle. Um, It's all around us all the time. And you literally can't avoid it. You can have no social media, but you can't have no media. Drive down the motorway, there's a billboard. There's an ad. Uh, That's media. That's media. Listen to the radio. Again, um, music, uh, newspapers, magazines, films television or Netflix or streaming or YouTube or anything on the Internet. Media, mass media, is a method of communicating with large numbers of people at once. We can't avoid it. Hermit on a mountaintop? Mapes. But there's not a lot of careers that involve being a hermit on a mountaintop. So there's so many things that we see as being uh, necessary and compulsory to educating our students our our young people and our students reading writing the scientific method mathematics no argument from me the more complex forms of those things maybe we're getting a little too specialized but i don't think there's any such thing as too much media studies for that reason we need to understand what the media is doing to us, how it manipulates us, how it impacts on our lives. And to be honest, even the academics among us are only just getting started in understanding just what media does to us. That's not to say that I think media is bad. I think like, um, like any form of technology, one of Cranzenberg's laws, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. It's how we use it. It's how we think of it and how and, and what knowledge we have of it. Social media can be an incredible boon. It can also be the thing that tips someone into anxiety, depression, mental illness, and suicide. Uh, the news media. But there's a, a huge importance to news media in educating our citizens for a functioning democracy. A free, independent, and truthful press is the fourth pillar of democracy. Um, We have to have an informed electorate or else what happens is people vote themselves bread and circuses. They vote in what they perceive to be their own best interest which is tax cuts sure and entertainment. Promise to get the Rugby World Cup back here and you've got my vote promise to give me um, an extra $50 a week in my pocket, and you've got my vote. We need to have an educated electorate who's actually thinking about the issues in order that we make decisions for the good of our whole society and not just ourselves. And that's where the news media is absolutely vital. And one of the problems with the news media today, of course, is it was becoming, particularly overseas, it's becoming hyper-partisan. Um, so that instead of everybody sitting down every evening at six o'clock and listening to Walter Cronkite or Dan, rather, or whoever it is, um, everybody's watching different news, and you've got the, the the liberal lefties watching CNN and CNN and MSNBC, and you've got the hard right uh, watching Fox News. And the thing is, they're all reporting the same facts, but they're then telling us what to think through their takes Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddox are interpreting the day's events for us and even more so than that um, you have even talk show hosts and comedians like um, Trevor Noah and and James Corden uh, James Corden interpreting what's going on in the world for us and telling us what to think and if you know depending on where you're getting your news from that's going to color your perception of the world around you and and you know and that's one of the things that we need to understand about how the media works and that's media studies and media studies is a subject at school it is a subject at school
0: and it was one of my favorite classes at school (laughs) mainly because of um, the teacher
1: (laughs) and the fact that you were a class of one for two years
0: yeah pretty much (laughs) Um, And you also also teach English as well. I do. What is your favourite thing to teach?
1: Oh, this is going to sound incredibly twee, but my favourite thing to teach is not so much a subject. It's just, it's people. That's what I love about teaching is is watching, you know, these little wide-eyed year nines arriving and then five years later being wide thinking, opinionated, bolshy young people who think and and you know and, and are not afraid to have an opinion and stand up for it and you know, fostering that subject-wise, <laughs> oh God. I despite what I said earlier, I love teaching Shakespeare. I, I just, I do. Um, uh, Shakespeare was one of my kind of least favourite
0: internals <laughs> in English, and I love English. <laughs> but learning about Iago from Othello, yeah, not my cup of tea, thanks. <laughs> but you made it fun, which is the main point.
1: <laughs> and part of that is the way that we had to fit Shakespeare into a curriculum that no longer makes Shakespeare compulsory, which I think is great. I'm really glad that it doesn't. But, you know, I think also, you know, as far as English is concerned, we have a, have responsibility as teachers to um, open our students' eyes to a wider range of um, literature. And and um, a few years ago, uh, when I began teaching year 13 English, um, I realized that my year 12 curriculum was dominated by dead white European men and I thought well Christ you know when I was in school going through high school in Canada in in uh, three years of junior high and three years of senior high uh, I remember studying one poem by a Canadian author and that's it everything else was by mostly dead entirely white European Almost entirely men. We did Shakespeare every year. We did use George Bernard Shaw. One year I studied, a, I did a paper called English Literature, where we began with Beowulf and we finished with the First World War Poets. Have you had any rewarding moments as a teacher? I'm sure you have, but... <laughs> um, every, every single year. Every year I attend um, senior prize giving after all this number of years I've managed to remember to wear an outfit that has pockets because there have been more than one occasion where I have forgotten to take tissues and there's been more than one occasion when I've remembered to take tissues but haven't had a pocket and therefore the tissues have been tucked into my bra. (laughs) But every year I reach for the Kleenex for particular students who have done remarkable things in one way or another. Students who have overcome um, incredible hardship, who are putting themselves through school on a youth benefit and living alone and um, have had breakdowns in their families and, and lack the supportive family that we know is so important in in educational success but they keep going Um, and they may not attain the greatest academic success but they're still at school and they're persevering and accomplishing something that probably no one thought they could I also have incredibly rewarding moments oh god um at our school um it has become a tradition that uh the uh, kapahaka and the prefects perform the uh, school haka for our ducks and it's always overwhelming oh god yes especially because i've done that (laughs) (laughs) and and i um am usually taking photos and so i'm sort of caught between the ropu and 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 the ducks, um, between the seating and the stage and it is it's it's absolutely overwhelming. Last year I think we had a an expo, a careers and you know pathways expo at, at the school. Um, and I was part of the team that organised it. And afterward, we were invited to the marae and I came home that night. and And we always talk about what was the best part of our day. And that night, I said, "I've, uh, you know, the the emotion and the the power of the hakka always makes me choke up." And I had never been on the receiving end until then. And that just, you know, move me to tears. Proud moment is is when I really appreciate it when students correct my pronunciation. I like to model the teacher as learner um, and and I try to practice culturally responsive pedagogy and especially in terms of um, valuing cultural capital because so many of my students have so much knowledge that I will never have and to value that and bring that to the forefront and I really do appreciate when you know, I have a, a student who every morning call the role and he greets me with talofa. When a student responds to the role just saying here, present, yep, then I just move on to the next name. But when a student greets me, particularly with, with a, a non-English greeting, um, then I will take the time to respond to them either by repeating their greeting back to them or if I know enough, by countering with another greeting in the same language. I think it's it's a real joy to see students find their place and to find that they are good at something. Um, whatever that thing is, students who have consistently not done well in one of the subjects that I teach and then through perseverance actually making a go of it and that's you know to see the change in their attitude. Um, that usually happens more with English because English is a compulsory subject, media studies you don't take it if you're not interested. I had a year 10 student earlier in the year who had written an essay and I handed it back to him and I said you know this was really well written it's a, it's a good merit um, I've written some suggestions at the bottom. I think if you take it home tonight, you could get it up to excellence. And he came back the next day and handed it in to me and said, Miss, I've never gotten an excellence in English before. And I thought, well, shit, I can't exactly not give you an excellence now. <laughs> he did deserve it. He did deserve it. But to have that, those little moments, it's not so much the big stuff. It's the little, the little ones. And there are the amazing students who just fly and you read what they've written or listen to what they say and think, shit, man, did I manage to teach you anything? And sometimes the way I express that is often it's not so much teaching them as pointing them in a direction and then getting out of the way. And there is that aspect of it as well with uh with some students they just they don't need a teacher they need a facilitator they need some direction and they're often very memorable um well and of course I can't go past prank week <laughs> of course yeah. prank week of course you know that's 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 probably uh, an extremely rewarding moment if only because you only get pranked if the if if you're a good sport which means that there are students who have grand affection for you, which is lovely. Uh, and, and your year group, as I recall, um, just uh, insulted my use of Comic Sans. Well, so, was a, that was a fun morning. <laughs> the, the faces on the movie posters, that was... that Yeah. They're still there, by the way. Ah, oh. They are. And I've kept one of the pieces, one of the, yes, Comic Sans um, is still stuck in, in my room. Um, So I'm a massive font snob. And one of my rules in media studies is no using Comic Sans in your magazine. And so Jess's year group printed out large numbers of uh, pieces of paper that said, yes, Comic Sans, yes, Comic Sans, yes, Comic Sans, in Comic Sans, and then stuck them all over the whiteboard and the windows. And then they got hold of a photo of me from From somewhere. From a selfie of me and you. Oh, there you go. See, there you go. Selfie of me and Jess. Printed those out. And put them all over the um, movie posters that are all around my room. Um, so that was that was quite a good one. I and we also
0: that. stacked up all your discs and chairs into like a pyramid mountain in that, the middle of the room that
1: we couldn't we couldn't uh, disassemble without it just completely collapsing. Streamers, streamers, and streamers, balloons. balloons. That was a good one. That was a good one. I also uh, quite liked uh, the year when three of my Year 13 media studies students arrived at school dressed as me.
0: That was really fun. That was that was fun. That was, like, that was cute. They got it
1: nearly. I'm pretty sure they got it. A plus. Skechers, black leggings, tunic, pink cardigan, dangly earrings, scarf, hair in a bun, and a pen through the bun. Yep. Pretty much your branding. Pretty much my branding. Sad to say that in the years since they left school, hasn't changed that much. <laughs> Still wearing my sketchers. Still wearing my black leggings.
0: <laughs> but it's comfort. You're like standing up all day teaching. Yeah. Crouching down to talk to your students.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The main thing that's different this year is I've given up on the dangly earrings because it's too hard to wear a mask. Ah, oh. with dangly earrings because you're putting them on, taking them off, putting them on.
0: How did COVID nineteen affect um, how the school was run, and
1: did you have like Zoom classes or? I did have Zoom classes, but I after during first lockdown, I uh, altered my approach for my media studies class, and and it turned out really really well. But it turned uh, the reason I did it was because. Uh, We had the year 12s and 13s in a single Google classroom. But what I noticed with Zoom classes was that students often turn off their camera and, and, you know, obviously good good etiquette to mute your mic. Then they would turn off their camera. And I'm not entirely sure of the reasoning. One of the things that I have considered might be possible is that they didn't want their classmates being able to see their house see their house or their bedroom yeah yeah
0: privacy and also a lot of it is um I mean lots of people and during lockdown I sat in my pajamas pretty much the whole time and looked looked awful because no one was going to see me that's probably another Mm. reason why they turned Mm. the cameras off
1: so I I did a lot of what I call uh, what what's called um asynchronous teaching so I would record material as uh, video presentations, but I would also have it available just to read and work through, depending on uh, your preferred method of, of learning. And then I put my, my media class, I asked them to select teams of up to eight people. So they were in self selected groups, and every day I would have two 10 minute calls with two groups. So we had we were running 20 minute classes um, and then it was self-directed learning in the afternoons. Um, so during our media studies time, I would have two 10 minute calls where it was just how are you going? What are your challenges? Have you got some good ideas? Have you got any questions? And I found that in that sense, because they had self-selected their, their teams, Their cameras were on, their mics were on. Anytime Ah. I had a whole class presentation, I always had time at the end for questions and nobody ever asked me anything. I would get emails later, oh miss, I didn't really understand such and such. And I realized, again, another posit, but I'm pretty sure I'm right here. If I say in a classroom setting, are there any questions? No questions. Then I start moving around the room. Hey, how are you going? One-on-one quiet conversation between you and me.
0: You'll ask.
1: Yeah. In a Zoom call, it's public. Everyone can hear what you have to say. Everyone hears what you have to say. And everyone hears you being the ning-nong who didn't understand the thing. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And I think that that was what made the difference with these small group calls, um, was that they were...
0: Open and... Able to express like they they weren't afraid to say anything wrong or some
1: like say anything because wrong because they were with their friends yeah and so they were you know they were in a supportive environment and so when I said does anyone have any questions they felt fully you know one of them would be like oh actually I I'm completely lost I'm stuck whatever and then somebody else would chime in yeah I'm feeling the same way but they also we also spent time talking about their mental health. You know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm feeling really demotivated. Okay, how can we work on that? But there were also some absolute clangers. Uh, like one morning, it was a Monday morning, small group, quite a small group, I think it was only four of them. And um, I said, Hey, how are you today? Um, how is everyone? And uh, one student raised her water bottle to me and said, But hungover, miss, but thanks for asking. <laughs> Living it up in lockdown. Living it up in lockdown, absolutely. So there were some funny moments. It was definitely challenging. It was challenging to get students to engage with the material. We found particularly with English in a situation where they actually had to produce something before we could give them feedback. Here's the instruction. Here's the exemplar. Now sit and write. And, you know, when you've got them nailed to a desk in English class for an hour... Um, you can keep encouraging them. Didn't happen. Very few people did um, a lot of their English work. Then I switched to a novel study because I'd had the presence of mind to issue their novel when it looked like we might be going into lockdown. So they had a book to read. So I was able to say, write chapter questions, watch this YouTube video, answer these questions, email me the answers or whatever. And, And that worked much better where it was much more concrete rather than, you know, write something and then I'll give you feedback. I found engagement in our second lockdown, uh, level three um, in August, uh, was much lower. Um, I, think, I think a lot of students found that a real struggle. Mentally, they weren't prepared for it. I think we were all, we might not have been prepared for lockdown in March, but there was that real sense of we can do this. And then when we got to level one, right, we've beaten it. And when we, when we went back into lockdown. It's like, um, oh, not again here We go again, and that realization that we could be in and out of this kind of thing, uh, for years. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, our con uh, you know, that was the wake up call that we needed, and we're all going to continue to use our contact tracing app and wear masks when it's indicated to do so, and so on. But yes, teaching teaching in the age of COVID definitely challenging. Zoom the, universe, I think the Zoom, the Zoom verse. Oh, lord, now there was an interesting one. Uh, during the second lockdown, we had had. So we went into lockdown on, it was announced on a Tuesday night, yeah. and then we moved into lockdown at lunchtime on Wednesday. Our school had had uh, parent teacher interviews booked for the Thursday. Oh gosh. And because of all the other things that had happened, that was our first parent teacher interview since we had our goal setting interviews in early term one. And so we did them via Zoom. Well, not Zoom we used an app called Whereby, which was actually very clever. And there was a lot of anxiety amongst the staff because, you know, we're kind of going, well, this is my private space. Mm. And teaching is one thing, but parents is another. So we had a lot of advice about having a neutral background and considering um, our um, surroundings and, and, you know, making sure that our cameras were positioned at eye level or a little above to avoid having six chins and all that kind of of thing. But... um, It worked surprisingly well. It was utterly exhausting. I don't know if you've uh, learned about a thing that that they're calling Zoom fatigue. No. It's more tiring, mentally more tiring, to have a five-minute video conference than it is to have a five-minute interview in person. And there's heaps and heaps of really good psychological reasons. And one of them is eye contact. We want to make eye contact with people that we're talking to and when we're on a video call, in order to make eye contact with a person, we have to be looking directly into the camera, which means we're not seeing their facial expression. And so our brains are completely confused, because we we're not making eye contact with them, but we are looking at them. But if we try to look directly at them, then we can't see them. And it's just it's utterly exhausting. And best practice is that you have a five minute, a five minute break in between video conferences which we didn't have um in our day so it was very very tiring uh funniest thing was that um my brother who's my builder was round um and i had myself all set up right height um and so on door shut children threatened with sudden death and overtime if they uh, if they opened the door while i was in my zoom meeting uh and just as i began my very first conference of the day my brother starts using power tools in the room above me. So that was super fun. Uh, luckily, the parent involved was um, extremely understanding. You know, I mean, what are you going to do? Be really pissed off and hang up on me? That'll be fine. So I picked up my laptop and walked into the kitchen <laughs> and finished the conference there. Yeah. <laughs> and then texted my brother and said, thank you so much for um, using the, uh, the rotary saw, but possibly could you do that part of the job tomorrow? stereotypes in new
0: zealand media what do you think about those
1: oh stereotypes in media in general Mm. um the biggest thing about stereotypes uh in media because they impact on what we see as possible and that also impacts on how we treat people that we see as Uh, conforming to a stereotype this kind of connects back to uh, the cannabis issue I suppose when we see so the primary representation of um, Māori the the majority of the time that we see Māori in media is in sport in um, entertainment and in um, either fictional or reality shows that depict Māori as criminals and low-income earners. And for us living in West Auckland, that might not seem like a big deal because we know that's not the totality mm-hmm. of 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 the Māori experience or the, the the Polynesian experience. But for someone who inhabits a a much different sector of New Zealand, where the brown faces that they encounter are mainly in the media, that's really massive to segue from that into the way that the world is changing and media is changing, it's also incredibly poignant, I suppose, that our young people are not, by and large, experiencing much New Zealand media. Go to YouTube, go to Netflix and search for, you know, the type of New Zealand content that would interest a young person. There's not a hell of a lot out there. And the fact that Our youth, particularly our Māori and Polynesian youth, are growing up seeing depictions of people who do not look like them or sound like them, I think is profoundly uh, difficult and disturbing. And it's why even something as inane as um, Hobbes and Shaw actually deserves a shout out for, you know, Dwayne the Rock Johnson has got enough clout in Hollywood now that he he basically said, "Okay, fine, um, but... We're going to Samoa. when we this piece of data is is provable and that is that uh, teacher expectations impact student choices and student outcomes and teachers as a group have lower expectation for our brown faces this piece of data is conjecture and that is that one of the reasons why teachers have lower expectations is because they don't see Māori and Pacifica represented in the professions in media, as well as we don't see uh, representation of Māori and Pacifica in the professions in real life, um, or not enough. And that comes back around to that idea of what is possible. In the, I would say, probably early 90s, we started seeing fictional black presidents in Hollywood movies right? And it wasn't until 2008 that we had an African-American president IRL. In the late 1990s we started seeing representations of female presidents and veeps. And now maybe, maybe fingers crossed in 2020 we might actually see a female vice president. The Gina Davis Institute for Gender and Media which is a hell of a mouthful, uh, their motto is if she can see it, she can be it. We don't necessarily think of things as being part of the, the infinite realm of possibility if we're not seeing it represented in uh, the fiction and non-fictional media that we consume. And that goes right across the board from professions to race and, or rather ethnicity. Who is the caregiver to children? You'll remember that I'm fighting a one-woman war against uh, the term daddy daycare and um, babysitting applied to fathers taking care of their own children. The word that you want is parenting uh, when it's your own kids. say it louder for the people in the back but when we you remember from when we looked at sitcoms yes the stereotype of the doofus dad yeah which um is both uh is damaging to to fathers because um it makes them look like morons but it's also damaging to mothers because the expectation is that the woman is the more competent parent there's nothing in having two X chromosomes that makes you a better caregiver. okay? It's entirely a social construct. Mm. And yet we're still fighting in 2020 for for parent rooms to be accepting of fathers, for men's restrooms to have baby change tables. But yes, yeah, st- stereotypes and media, a um, massive problem and also a massive. It's, it's a really important thing for us to get our heads around in terms of the impact that the media has on our lives. You know, I think we're all very aware now of the term toxic masculinity. We're also very aware of the impact that media has on on um, beauty standards. You know, there's a lovely um, a media test called the Finkbeiner Test, which is a, about journalism and um, how... Women are portrayed in journalistic media and during the last uh, US presidential um, election, there were some funny things about um, where people commented about Bill Clinton the way that you would typically comment about the presidential nominee's wife. And so Bill um, attired in a um, uh, conservative but well-tailored dark blue pantsuit accessorized with a powder blue tie, uh, which perfectly toned in with the backdrop, right? Um, This is the sort of thing that is done to women all the time. There was a lovely thing with Kate Blanchett once where, you know, the, the, the dress cam, at the Oscars I think it was the Oscars that pans down a woman's outfit and then back up again and she followed it just dropped (laughs) her head following the camera and said do you do this to the guys Uh, in journalistic pieces about women particularly women in in science and technology we're going to see something there will be a question about um, how does she find it working in a male-dominated field There will be a question about her childcare arrangements. There will be a comment about what she's wearing or who she's wearing or something like that. And uh, the Finkbeiner test, basically, it was a, a journalist who challenged herself to write a profile of a female in a STEM field without doing any of that. And so now we call that the fink Test and a piece can pass the Think Biner Test if it basically treats women in the same way that men would be treated.
0: Yeah. So what are your favourite films? I know I've got, I love Gone Girl even though I can't watch it for mm. at least another year and The Lovely Bones. Those are my, two of my favourite movies. Mainly Gone Girl because
1: we studied it in Year 13 English. Well, I I think the film... Gone Girl is a great film. It comes close to the book. There are some pretty obvious differences in terms of the unreliable protagonist um, or unreliable narrator works much better in the novel form because you can't have an unreliable narrator in a film. But I think David Fincher did a really, really good job. Um, I do appreciate, though, that it's, uh, it's written by a woman um, and I think it would be nice if it had been directed by a woman as well some interesting debate as to whether it counts as a feminist text, given that the villain is a woman and, um, you know, whether it's actually bringing, bringing the side down and that kind of thing. Um, the lovely bones is just gorgeous. And again, also a great, um, yes. I do remember reading that novel. Mm. Uh, I think that Peter Jackson was probably, you know, the best choice as a director there because his, have you seen Heavenly Creatures?
0: Yes, and yeah. I'm like, and I don't think I'll be able to watch that for at least another few years. It's kind
1: of cringy. <laughs> it's hard to watch now because it's it is dated. Yeah. Um, the, the the sort of um, the collision of the real and the unreal is something that Peter Jackson does really well. Yeah. Um, the imaginary landscapes in Heavenly Creatures, and then the the heaven or Heaven Standin' I guess in um, Lovely Bones Um, if you've never seen Big Trouble not Big Trouble in Little China which is also a classic but Big Trouble 2002 uh, it is hands down one of the funniest movies of all time um, and just really clever snappy dialogue I love me some good dialogue I have for three years now I think it's three uh, taught the New Zealand film Water, um as a year 13 text, which That's was a, what which
0: is the film I studied in my last year, so hmm. I was the founding,
1: it's <laughs> very much so, and and um, founding student. Yes, <laughs> any of your listeners who haven't seen it, I thoroughly urge them to um, uh, to, to give it a go. It's not an easy watch, um, and and there is a lot of technique in it that you kind of need to get your head around but it's an incredibly powerful film and I think it's a a really cool um, experiment in filmmaking it's that portmanteau film um, and a really heavy conceit of of these eight segments all being done in a single uh, shot all telling different stories but all taking place in the same 10 minutes of the same day which is the third day of the tangi of a boy named waru so these um, eight segments are all directed by different wahine um, Māori directors um, and all written also by, by um, wahine Māori. So, yeah, I think that's a, a really, really interesting um, film and really powerful. There's a, another one by the same production company called Vai, uh, which is sim- similar in concept in the way that it's... Different uh, directors, different shorts, um, but rather than being the same time, it's different stages of the same woman's life, and and this one is Pacifica. I think there's some really interesting things coming out of New Zealand filmmaking now. Um, there's been interesting things coming out of New Zealand for a long time. Things that I will watch and rewatch. I'm just looking, I, I can see my, my DVD shelf from here. What t- What about my um, like TV
0: shows So you mentioned Shits Creek
1: before? Oh, I love Shits Creek. That is just, I, I, it's just got so much heart and it's so funny. Uh, and it's also, shout out, hashtag, SoCanada. Although if you enjoy Shits Creek and you want a little bit more Canadian humour, um, you can look up Letterkenny. There's quite a bit of it on YouTube. Yeah, it's it's very funny. I enjoyed the good place. That was I've good fun. I watched one episode of that mm. and I wanna finish it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little bit of a slow burn, but it's quite it's quite cool. I really like the way that the good place and uh, Schitt's Shits Creek and other things like Fleabag are pushing the boundaries of what a sitcom can be. Uh you know, I've got I, I, the, my media studies hat on while I'm watching, but I'm also just really thoroughly enjoying the comedy and, and the storyline because it's developing these characters in a way that a show like Friends, they were static. You know, Ross never learned. He was the same at the end of 11 seasons as he was at the beginning. He's still an ass. Everybody hated him at the start and everybody hated him at the end. You know, The Simpsons. How many years has that been going now? Oh, 30. 30. Like yeah. something like 30 and and the character of homer simpson has not i mean okay it's animated so he he doesn't have to age but he hasn't grown up at all he's still the same guy that he always was we're in something like Shits creek um and the good place the characters are growing and changing and i think that's really interesting
0: you did you watch um game of thrones yes what do you think about the final season
1: Well, all I'm going to say about that is that back before the series even began on TV, because I've been reading George RR Martin since the 90s, I had an, a discussion with an old friend of mine about how was this all going to end. And he said, I reckon my, my money's on Jon Snow. And I said, do you now? That's interesting. And he said, well, what do you think? I said, this is a long shot, but Bran. And who was right? Well, I, you know, I don't want to rub anyone's nose in it, Richard. um, But I will, because you'll never hear this. So that's fine. He lives in Canada. Uh, The reason that I picked Bran for the win is that in the books... It's through bronze eyes that we first see Westeros. And if I were an author, I would not be able to resist that symmetry. So that was my pick. I will also say that my favorite coffee cup um, has the uh, three dragons on it and says Mother of Dragons on the side. And now I don't feel comfortable using it. So that's a bit mean. Um, Daenerys. Oh, She just, you know, I mean, you had to make her go full loopy on us. You know, I'm going to be interested to see if Martin doesn't die before concluding the series, whether he will have a different outcome for um, the Targaryens because I think she was a little hard done by in the end.
0: Well, there was a theory I um, saw yesterday and... So I saw something the other day about Game of Thrones and it it, it made it, it was very interesting. It's basically a conspiracy theory. So Amelia Clark went featured on a new book by James Hibbard called Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon and Amelia Clark who played Daenerys um, reveals her take on where her dragon Drogon went when he carried Danny's body a- away from the Red Keep, right? She said, "Quote I think he flies around with a body until it decomposes. I literally think he keeps flying until he can't fly anymore. He just keeps on grieving. But, in the show, Sam Tarly um, thinks that Drogon was last seen flying to Volantis, which spurred fan mm. theories about Danny possibly being resurrected. Hmm. That's interesting.
1: Hmm. Maybe there'll be a dragon-human hybrid because... You know, the last of the Targaryens and the last of the dragons. Ugh. Ugh. Now, that the a fan theory for you. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> so the Mako Mori um, test, what does that have to do with Star Wars?
1: <laughs> okay, so the Mako Mori test is named for uh, a character in um, the movie Pacific Rim. And basically, so... Um, the Bechdel test is is a test of representation in media, and and um, it w- see the, the the thing about the Bechdel test that you need to understand is that it was tongue in cheek. It was never meant as a serious measure of representation. It was merely a measure of just how poor representation of women in the media actually is. So, the Bechtel test is a pass fail system, and we'll get to that a bit and, later. Yeah. So, but. Uh, there's plenty of other of these tests that have been devised, and the Mako Mori test uh, says that you have a a female character in your in your text, and she has her own narrative arc, um, which is really important because um, so many female characters exist merely to support male characters. Um, even when there's multiple female characters, it's not their story. It's the man, the man's story. So the Mako Mori test, at least one female character, she has her own story arc. And that story arc is not about supporting a man's story. Uh, and earlier we are talking about Star Wars and how most of the Star Wars films don't pass the Bechdel test, which is so totally basic. But in the new saga, the conclusion of the Skywalker saga that started with Force Awakens, we have two prominent female characters uh, Leia and Rey and actually both of them independently would pass the Mori test Leia, Leia's arc is about winning the resistance and, and leading the rebellion um, and I guess you could say Rey's arc is about finding her path and neither one of them is supporting a male character they're both telling their own story and that's such an important thing is for female characters to have their own voice and to have their own story and not to be the love interest or the prize to be won or the mother, you know, God help us all. So Vito Russo uh, was a uh, an LGBTQ actor in early Hollywood and was the subject of a documentary called The Celluloid Closet um, that basically traced early lgbtq representation or rather the lack thereof you may or may not know that a lot of sort of in the golden age of hollywood although they couldn't have gay characters people who were playing the villains were frequently instructed to play them as homosexual
0: like iago
1: yes like iago. there's my shakespeare brain coming in there you go and sometimes the actors who were playing those villains were genuinely gay um and often they were also married to women um, because they needed what was called a beard to disguise their homosexuality. So Vito Russo test is a measure of LGBTQ representation in media. GLAAD uses the Vito Russo test um, to look at LGBTQ plus rep in Hollywood. So in order, again, it's pass-fail test. You've got to have a character, at least one, who is um, lesbian Gay, bisexual or transgender I think nowadays we probably also Start opening up to Non-binary and so on However, really key To the Vito Russo test Is that the character is not Defined by their sexuality So they are not the gay best friend Mm. Right Um, They are a real Genuine, fully fleshed out Person who happens to be Gay, lesbian, bi whatever and additional they need to be vital to the plot which again a character like the gay best friend is frequently um, just there as a cheerleader so evil gay evil person is vital to the plot but their sexuality is not and so that sort of thing wouldn't pass because they don't need to be identified by their sexuality at all mm. um, it's a tricky one to really get your head around and I'm going to come back to Schitt's Creek because Schitt's Creek passes Vito Russo with flying colors if you don't know the show the character of David uh, early on has a fling with uh, a female character um, and has he presents as possibly kind of gender fluid or or um, non-binary but it's not discussed you know his his fa- let's just say his flat fashion sense is very flamboyant. Um, he wears a lot of kilts, and 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 in fact Dan Levy in real life at the Oscars, uh, so the Emmys, um, is wearing a male you know is wearing he's wearing a he's wearing a, a skirt and a suit jacket. So this is clearly part of his um, fashion aesthetic as well. So his backstory he has. He talks, his character talks about past boyfriends, but also past girlfriends. So there's that element there. So he never has this big coming out moment on the show. Uh, The characters of Schitt's Creek, which is, uh, they're, you know, a small town, Canada, but played as America, don't act like enormous homophobic bigots. He doesn't have to fight homophobia. They're just, this is just David, and they're accepting of him later on in the show the entrance of the character Patrick and and they fall in love and it's just this absolutely sweet lovely genuine love story which is so rare and there's no big drama about the fact that these are two men they're just two people who love each other and so David is defined not by his sexuality but by his inability to cope in this small town life and the fact that he's pining for the big city and the fact that he lives an extravagant lifestyle he doesn't really understand how this whole you know small town living thing works and he's very fashion oriented and so on a lot of things that are stereotypically associated with being gay male but that's not what it's hooked to because we have another gay male character who is none of those things and it's just not a big deal and the third test is that this character is tied to the plot. Well, David is absolutely central, and um, and and so is Patrick because that's the evolution of the characters. So this is a beautiful example of the way that it really does work. Another one would be uh, sex, sex education. Yes, Otis and Eric. There is another one where we do have a little bit of. There's a bit of reality in that show, I think. In that um, we do see um, uh, some of the bullying that can go on, um, and I think that's really important that we do show that. Who's the um, the other boy? Um, Adam. Adam. Yes. And and there's a really clear character arc of those characters that is not tied to their sexuality even though it's a show about sex, right, and being young and so on. But there are, you know, more important to the show um, than Eric's sexuality is his friendship and support of Otis. And I think probably if you examine current media, more television is going to pass the Vito Russo test than movies, And that's possibly simply a, fe- a feature of having more time to explore these characters.
0: And some of the movies that pass, there's Call Me By Your Name, Rocky Horror, Bohemian Rhapsody, Percibina Wallflower, Brokeback Mountain, and Four Weddings and a Funeral, just
1: to name a few. Mm. One of my favourites on there is, is um, uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. And it's also interesting that it's one of the earlier uh, films on that list that that um, passes. And it's such a lovely, sweet representation of uh, two of the characters are gay, but not obviously so, not stereotypically so. And if you if you know any scene from that film, it will almost undoubtedly be Stop All The Clocks. Do you know that? I haven't watched it. Okay. It's a lovely film. Recommend that you do. Some of it will be cringe. Um, The main character played by Andy McDowell. I don't know why she was given the job when she clearly can't act. Just saying. Oh, God. Watch it. You'll see what I mean. But these two characters and um, Hamish is, is one and he's loud and flamboyant and over the top and he has a heart attack and dies. And his longtime partner at his funeral reads uh, a poem by W.H. Auden called Stop All The Clocks, and it's um, it's about the way that the world you want the world to stop turning when a person that is your whole world dies. Yeah. And, and that is so poignant. It could have been a heterosexual couple. It wouldn't have changed the plot of the film. But it's so important that a film in the early 90s had this this couple who that poem had been in obscurity for so long and yet so it appeared so regularly and still does in um, funerals and eulogies now because of that movie and it wasn't people going oh god no we can't have that it's a gay character and that's really cool uh, and the only one on, on your jottings that little list there uh, that's earlier than Four Weddings and a Funeral is Rocky Horror yes um, and it's interesting because we found that one on an IMDB list so it's a user list and thinking about the Vito Russell test uh, Russo test I'm not 100% sure that I agree with its place there. We have an LGBTQ character. I mean, so we've got... Frankenfurter. Frankenfurter. We have Frankenfurter. So we contain a character that's identifiably LGBTQ+. Yes. But this is the part that I'm not sure passes, the character must not be solely or predominantly defined by their sexual orientation or gender identity. Right. Okay. They're made up of the same sort of unique character traits commonly used to differentiate straight characters from one another. And I'm not sure that you can really say that Frankenfurter passes that. Yeah. Because he is a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania, and that's... Period, love period
0: (laughs) (laughs) so back to the Bechdel test um what's the test
1: just so the test uh as I said earlier was originally written as a um uh as a bit of a joke so it's pass fail to pass you must have more than one female character that have names and they must talk to one another about something other than a man and that's it uh, it's a, As you can see, it's a really, 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 really low bar. Yeah.
0: So I'm going to test you on some of them. <laughs> okay. Um, so, do you think Thor Ragnarok passed the test?
1: I'm going to say no.
0: No, you are right. Mm. It did not pass the test.
1: Neither did Lord of the Rings, as you know. Mm. Yeah, we never have two fem- two named female characters in the same scene. Mm. Let alone talking to one another. Yeah. Let alone about something other than a man.
0: <laughs> Beauty and the Beast, the one with Emma Watson in it. A modern take on a yes. Disney film.
1: Yeah. Oh. I don't think it does. Well, it it did. It did. Yeah. Ah. American Pie too? <laughs> film I haven't watched in 20 years. Um I'm gonna say no because I suspect that they just talk about their boyfriends. Well it pass it pa- oh okay oh I'm not doing so well here. All right the great Gatsby.
0: And you you should know this one because you, <laughs> you
1: well he studied the novel. Not I've the film. studied the novel but not the film. um yes. Yes, it did pass. Yeah, that would be by the slimmest of margins, though. Yeah. Um, Crazy to think how how tight this line is mm. for something so basic as you know. All we need is for you these two characters to just say hi. How's how how are you? Yeah. Not well, McGonagall. How's Harry? Speaking of <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um none of the Harry Potter films except one passed this test. Mm-hmm. That was the Deathly Hallows part one. That one. That's the only one that yep. passed. Yep. Um and like you said before, none of the original Star Wars.
1: None of the as original well. Star Wars passed. None of the original Star Wars have more than one named female character, so there you are. Yeah. Uh and then the prequels also, I don't believe the prequels pass either. Don't think they do. Mm. Oh no. Oh, oh. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. The prequels at least one of them passes because when the decoy princess queen person not Amidala gets blown up in the spaceship and the real Padmé comes racing down she says i failed you my lady and padme says no you were exactly where you were supposed to be passes the bechdel test wow booyah that's <laughs> <laughs> a terrible film have
0: you seen the art of racing on the rain no have you read it also no i think you might like it okay so that doesn't pass the test okay neither does avatar
1: yeah not surprises. No surprises there. Slumdog
0: Millionaire or The Grand Bitter Hotel? Mm.
1: It's so funny, isn't it? How just how bloody male-centric so much for our media is. Mm. Mm. Jojo Rabbit passed. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think um, Pan's Labyrinth passed? Uh,
1: yes, but yes, only just... yeah. Um, crazy Stupid Love? Yes, because of a conversation that she has about passing the bar exam yes and last but not least Blade Runner 2049 well the OG Blade Runner doesn't pass (laughs) Uh, 2049 I'm gonna say no it passed Uh, and so did
0: Despicable Me 3
1: (laughs) (laughs) well by virtue of those three adorable little girls yes
0: (laughs) And on that note, this has been the end of the third episode of the Broadband of Everything podcast with Jess and Katie. Thank you so much for joining. That was a very, very interesting topic. And I'm pretty sure podcasting is your middle name. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jess.